How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like the church is trying to hold The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers, but they don't even know the questions we're asking. The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is from the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in your ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today our guest is AJ Sherrill. AJ is a gifted pastor, teacher, writer, and leader. And he has two decades of pastoral experience in diverse settings in Long Beach, in New York City, and most recently in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you have two decades of pastoral experience, I'm assuming you started pastoring at like 15. So that's really, that's amazing to me. I'm rowing into it at 19, mate. Wow. Wow. He's, a, he's the author of Expansive, Stretching Beyond Superficial Christianity. Great title. Quiet, Hearing God Amidst the Noise, Urban Disciple, Following Jesus Through the Gospel of Matthew. And next month on September 15th, he will release his newest book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. He has a doctorate degree from Fuller Theological Seminary, where he also teaches doctorate classes as well. I'm going to stop there and not keep going. AJ, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, man. Really honored and grateful for your friendship, Kevin. Each episode, we want to take the church to therapy to talk about specific issues that she might need to work through in order to break through or move forward into a better, more Christ-shaped, wider, and beautiful future. And today, as we take the church to therapy and have this conversation, we're going to talk about the need for self-awareness and why self-awareness is so important for growth. So let's just begin there. Why is self-awareness so central to spiritual formation and what might be dangerous about people on the journey who are lacking self-awareness? Yeah, I, I think... That question um, can can be as, as simply stated as you can't transform what you will not name. Mm. And so much of our lives, we subconsciously, somewhat consciously, but I think mostly subconsciously have developed strategies to conceal and to hide in order to cope um, with our own mischief, with our own ancestry, with the stuff we inherited, um, with the shame that we feel. We spend a lot of time hiding and burying things deep and shoving them under the carpet, mostly because we're stretched in time. Uh, we're afraid of what we'll find and we're exhausted. So I mean, you think about doing really hard soul work right now in a pandemic where politically it couldn't be just more difficult and socially, even with own families are being ripped apart. It's so hard to have the capacity in that sort of moment to be like, Oh, let me dig around my soul a little bit too. Yeah. Um, so we just prefer to think that the problems are out there and that surely I couldn't be a part of that problem. So there's a lot of reasons I think that we yeah. to divert. Yeah. And I already love just feeling those pastoral sensibilities you have in that answer, because it's not just there's resistance because people are scared of the darkness. You're mm -hmm. like, Yes, there is some un unconscious elements of that, but it's hard. It's nice. It's just schedules. And how, when I only have an hour and a half after the kids go down, then I'm supposed to face my entire shadow <laughs> at nighttime. I don't like, I, so I love how you name just the reality of what people experience from schedules and how challenging that truly is on so many levels. You know, one of my biggest surprises as a new Christian around Christians for the first time at a Bible college was I went through this spiritual formation course. And at the end of it, I was just left with this one question. How can you talk about this journey of spiritual formation and transformation without mentioning self-awareness once? 
And it's like what you said, how do you expect these young people and anybody to transform that which they are unaware needs to be transformed? That just always stayed with me. So why do you think in so much Christian formation or discipleship, self-awareness isn't naturally integrated into the journey with Christ? Yeah, I mean, so much of the last 200 or so years of Christianity is transactionally based anyway. Mm. So it's, it's not existentially based in what, or ontologically, meaning mm. study of being, who you are, right? Mm. So much of the models that at least I grew up in is, you know, pray this prayer so you can go somewhere, um, repent so that God likes you again. <laughs> so you get this sort of quid pro quo, you do this, God will do that. And in that sense, we're the initiator. God is the responder. And a biblical frame of God is that God is actually the initiator. Like mm. the beautiful thing about the prodigal son yeah, is that the son is forgiven before having even basically come home. The father runs through the city and hugs the son. You know what I mean? It's not like, hey, do these things and then I'll like you again. Um, and I, so I think that transactional sort of spirituality gets gets in the way. So we think that there's not, God's not as interested in soul work and our being. God's just interested in sort of getting us somewhere else. And so to do that, we need to jump through these hoops. So I think that's probably part of it. That's not all of it, but that occurs to me when you bring that up. I also think about a narrative, you know, we're story creatures. Mm, Yeah. I think about the narrative of Saul's conversion to Paul Mm. and that, you know, I think most people like Saul, like me, we think that we're right (laughs) <laughs> we again we think the problems are out there in paul's case formerly saul um if you don't know his story it's in the book of acts start with about chapter eight chapter nine read for a few chapters it's a really great story of personal transformation of someone who basically gets knocked off of his game you know um and goes blind has to be completely blinded in order to see i mean you think about the spiritual metaphor of that is in order for you to see saul i'm gonna have to bl- to blind you so good um yeah, i love that and, and here's a guy that's running in his lane thinking i'm doing good work for god i'm jumping through the hoops i'm a pharisee of pharisees i have zeal i know the torah which is the hebrew bible the first five books um and and that he had totally missed the mark and needed a heart change and needed to name some things in his life before the Holy Spirit, um, you know, which is the sort of dynamic transformer of the, the person of God, um, you know, before the Holy Spirit could really get a hold of his life. And I, I'm, I'm compelled by that. I'm also interested in ways that I'm still operating as Saul, still blind wow. to stuff. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. That story of, uh, the 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 unlearning the not seeing becomes the very place that the seeing is born out of yeah now that's that his uh his journey that transformation there's just so much there i'm glad that you pointed people towards that and i'm not a, a glutton oh, yeah, for yeah. Pain or punishment mm. but you know i'll say some richard Rohr um either said in a course i took with him or maybe he wrote one of his books you know, he said, particularly related to men. Now, this is true. This isn't gender-based. But he did a lot of work with, like, male initiation, Absolutely. male psychology. And he said, particularly with men, it takes the puncture of the ego mm. for us to become aware and open to transformative possibilities. Mm. And I think, at least in the work I've done with men, that's very true that men, you know, we often live in externals and, you know, muscular fitness and show, you know, we're very visual. Not Again, these aren't isolated categories yeah absolutely Um, but to say it often takes a kind of blindness a kind of knocking off your horse if you will before it really gets our attention to say my goodness so in a moment like this where things are hard things are uncertain anxiety abounds it actually might be the thinnest space we can find meaning the most transformatively possible space where god can actually get our attention where maybe we have been deaf for years yeah and i think some of the thoughts and quotes and ideas connected with that the puncturing of the ego the falling it's so many of those counterintuitive you know you you come like when roar says you come to god not by doing it right but by doing it wrong mm-hmm. you know that that saint Teresa of avila quote where it's like first the fall or first the fall what was it first the fall oh, i forgot what it is but it's like saying 
the fall when we fall itself that's also the mercy of god like it's in the falling it's in those when things are taken away from us becomes that thin place where the spirit we finally have these couple vulnerable spaces to allow the spirit to enter in it reminds me there's this old catholic doctrine called fortunate fall um Mm, i first learned it through audrey Assad's music Mm. and actually the fall as much as we lament it i certainly do um, and however you want to view that, uh, there were actually kinds of depths that we became more aware of through brokenness that we perhaps never would have known. And it's just been part of the human creation story of redemption and transformation. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, deep themes, Kevin, gosh, you're going there. You're going there quickly. Well, this is, it's therapy, right? With a therapist is we're going as deep as whoever's here wants to go. Um, Let's switch it up for a second. I would say, feel free to correct me if you think this is misguided, that self-awareness is the beginning point of transformation, but is not transformation itself. So a couple questions, a couple thoughts before I want you to speak into this. One, why is self-awareness in and of itself not enough? What is the distinction between self-awareness and transformation? And the reason why I ask this is pastorally, you know, working with so many people, I'm always so, there's just so much clarity where, you know, seeing the journey and doing the journey are not the same thing. Mm. People learning something and living something are not the same thing. I think that's one of the kind of rubs for me when I, whether I'm listening to podcast teachers, quote unquote, spiritual teachers is there's times where someone says something and I'm like, it's not that I disagree with the content of what you're saying, but the energy, the vibration, the resonance, the gravity of your life communicates to me that you don't know that and have not directly experienced that for yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? So I'm like, I, I, I agree with what that pastor's saying, but because of his neuroticism, because of the fruits of his life, that shows me that you might not know that for yourself. He can see it and preach it, but the doing and the living it, there's always, it's harder. So can you talk to us a little bit about those things right there? I th- so what I think about when you bring up self-awareness, self-awareness is always in relation to. Hmm. So we can't, one of the greatest gifts that God gave human was other human right Mm -hmm. so if you're in a spousal relationship you understand that you become very self-aware very quickly right yeah um what happens to this prophet named isaiah in chapter six of one of his three books that we put together um is that he becomes very aware of his relation to god in one moment you know again kind of like this saul paul story where he's going along doing his thing great prophet righteous etc etc and then he gets sort of a taste of the holiness of god and in relation to that, he becomes very self-aware that um, his life isn't as, um, well, let's just say, uh, as, as right as he thought it was, which we've all sort of had that moment as well, at least many of us, and at least a kind of humiliation that can lead to a sh- either shame or it can lead to rebuilding something beautiful. And I like to think of self-awareness as the beginning of the journey that it typically happens not because of yourself, It typically happens because you're in relationship to someone or something that gives you intel about yourself. So like, for example, my wife gives me intel about myself because Elena is just, she's so wonderful at certain attributes that it, it, it mirrors my own lack thereof in some areas. Right. And that's the same with God. Or there are times where let's just put this in the sphere of politics, since we're in an election year where you can see something politically, whether it's a kind of crowd or a mob or a candidate um, that is the exact opposite of what you stand for and what you want to be true of yourself. Right. Mm. So self-awareness happens. First of all, I would say for people, not some sort of private sort of nature walk by yourself where you're analyzed. But when you actually think about yourself in relation to the world, you become more clear as to who you want to be and what it is God has called you to do in this world. So that would be my first place to say, like the greatest place to look for self-awareness is actually in relation to others. Which Um, might also be the very unconscious reason why people avoid those very spaces. Maybe. Because so often that's why I think in in deep senses of community, there's the inevitability of 
people either directly giving you that intel, which is it can be very hard to receive from the <laughs> ego, or the community just becomes a mirror that mirrors back to yourself. Like now I hurt this person and I can't deny that. And now I'm having to face some of those things within me, which is why so often I see with pe- what I see in people. And what I say is we, res- we so often we resist the things we desire the most. Yeah. I desire connection, intimacy to be seen. But then every time someone invites me into a community space where that's possible, I naturally want to reject it. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think so often it's because we desire that, but also what you're saying, the intel directly or indirectly is going to be a part of that. And that can be painful, humiliating, yeah. even forms of those punctures to the ego that you mentioned before. It can yeah. be those things. Yeah, so oh, Ignatius yeah. has this way of prayer called the prayer of examine. Mm. And it essentially is a practice where you review the last 24 hours of your day and you poke around and ask questions. And it occurs to me how much I would uh, like to avoid that practice because there are just moments of most, if not every one of my days where I'm complicit in hurting people Mm. or um, I'm impatient um, or I'm just not kind um, judgmental. Mm. And, it, you know, this goes back to us wanting to conceal things. Why would we want to stop long enough and review? Uh, because we have to face some of that stuff. Mm. And that's why the Enneagram is so helpful for me is, is actually helped me name ways in which I function and call normal, um, which actually might not be helpful or normal in the world. And I need mm. to own that mm. so that I can transform it. Not so I can wallow in it and say, oh, woe is me. But so I can say, okay, I'm aware of that. That's not the person I want to be. I don't want to be having the same conversation in two years, five years, 10 years. Mm. So how do I take responsibility to see those things actually transformed? Yeah. Oh yeah. And what's so good. And I think what that, something like the prayer of examine and how you're saying you use it, you know, why we might not want to, but why it's so beneficial to me, that always helps reground us in the earthy, real life day-to-day reality and feeling of what deep spirituality is you know there's there's so many moments what we consciously desire is inspiration but what we really need is transformation which comes from those very spaces mm-hmm. you know what i mean like those moments that can lead that carry the potential to lead to the deepest parts of transformation which leads you <clears throat> to the kind of freedom you really desire we avoid because it doesn't always, it's not sexy. It's not the high, there aren't tears coming down my face because of how high my hands are raised. It's like, ugh, I said that to my mom again. <laughs> you know, I, she, I let her get to me again when I talk to her on yeah. the phone. Yeah. Yeah, that's good, man. I appreciate you saying that because it's just, it's just the day-to-day, the real journey, man. That's so good. You mentioned it. So let's, <laughs> So we talk about self-awareness. We talk a little bit about the need for self-awareness on the journey, right? We're simply seeing those things that we want to invite the spirit of God, transform, uproot, let's die to some of these things so we can make room for this Christ-like journey pattern for the future, both in how we receive goodness in life and how we extend goodness out of ourselves. So then we come to the Enneagram, which is a tool that helps so much of that journey of self-awareness that helps us have clarity along the way. Here's what I want to say about the Enneagram first for people listening. For people who are aware of what the Enneagram is, somehow, mysteriously, I don't get it, it just blew up. That this ancient, weird, esoteric for so many people, oral tradition that hasn't even been a written tradition for that long, blows up in like, like kind of the broader popular evangelical culture. And now it's like, it's everywhere. I want to say this about AJ being here. AJ was writing and teaching about the Enneagram before it was cool. I just want to let everybody know that. All right. Enneagram in the way of Jesus, when it was published, obviously written before that, he was out there not only learning it from self, but teaching it before it exploded. I just always like to give people that credit because sometimes there's certain authors who blow up. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. I was reading him like 15 years ago. Oh, that's dope that you're quoting him now. So AJ has been on it. He's a great communicator, teacher on the Enneagram. His newest book, like I mentioned, Enneagram is 
for spiritual formation coming out next month. I don't think I've ever asked you this personal question. How did you first get introduced to the Enneagram yourself? And then what was that moment like when you connect with your number and you're like, whoa, like this is, this is a thing right here. Yeah. Well, first let me say, you know, I've been doing workshops on this for years. And when I stumbled upon your graphic with the cartoons for each type, I remember texting you or emailing you and being like, dude, I've got to use that for my workshop. I'll give you credit. So you come up in every one of my workshops now. Nice. And I'll say he's my jerk pastor friend who lives in Hawaii. Yeah. He'd be sending me like photos of turtles. Ontologically, just because he lives in Hawaii. (laughs) It's snowing in Michigan. I'm like, look at the weather here. It's a beautiful day. (laughs) Yeah. So I was, um, I was studying with Richard Rohr uh, for my doctorate. Mm. this was maybe seven, eight years ago. Mm. And he mentioned the word, uh, I was with a friend of mine, um, who, who I, I've learned so much from named Mark Scandrett. Mm. And the two of us were studying with Richard in his home. And he mentioned the Enneagram. It wasn't even what the class was about. And so there's just, you know, a handful of us there. And Mark and I are like, can you go back? What, what was that word? Did you say pentagram? Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, Enneagram. And so we got him off task and for like mm-hmm. hours, he just riffed on this thing. So I was interested in it because, um, you know, I went back and started reading his book, Helen Palmer, Don Richard Riso, all the sort of classics on the Enneagram. And, and the reason I found it compelling was because it wasn't like strengths finders, although I love that, or sure. even Myers-Briggs. A lot of these that I find very much helpful are a behavioral theories. They're not motivating. They're not motivational. They don't tell you what's exactly. underneath the thing, underneath the thing, underneath the thing. Exactly. They, they don't tell you what's under the water. They tell you the manifestation of your actions and how so good. in the world. Um, and secondly, the Enneagram is so brutal about ways in which you show up and are motivated that are not helpful. Mm. And for me, I was very much at a place in my life where self-confrontation was, was interesting. Mm. Um, I was spiritually bored saying, well, gosh, I got a lot of work I can do on myself. And so I wanted to sort of look under the rug and to see what was there. So the Enneagram helped me name things that I probably kept quiet for a while. So a few months later, I found myself um, with Aaron Nequist that I know who's been on the show and a couple others. Um, we, were, we were with uh, a guy named Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile mm. before they published their book that just blew yeah. up very well called the road back to you. And I said to Suzanne at a break, I said, who's doing like, who's taking this forward when it comes to like, great. So I know my number. Now what? Like in terms of spiritual formation, what do I do about it? Like if I show up this way, that sucks. I don't, I don't want to keep showing up that way. I, I want to change and grow. And she said, AJ, to my knowledge, no one right now is doing any work on spiritual formation. Wow. in the Instagram. So I'm like, how do we pair each type with practices that are going to help so us good. Rather than just saying to everybody, hey, take a nature walk. Hey, go to church. Hey, try to pray. Hey, meditate. It's like, that's all well and good, but aren't there specificities? Aren't there different types of prayer? Aren't there different types of ways that we can engage God through the uniqueness of our personality that might be really well suited that I really engage God this way and you engage God that way. And that's a wonderful thing. And we need to figure out how to do that, that challenges and grows us specifically you know, I call it batching spiritual formation. We like to batch it. We like to say to everybody, everybody do this and you'll be changed. Well, mm. not everybody feels changed after a couple of years. They just feel older. Mm. So how do we tailor make spiritual practices to fit your personality and to help grow and challenge it? So that's a lot of my journey. It started with Richard Rohr years ago. Which is he- essentially the best way you could start the journey. Yeah. In that, there's so many people who listen are like, I want to be in that room. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was a wonderful guide and his, his book was, was really wonderful. Um, and I, I've learned a, a lot from him, especially on, on psychology. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. That was a lot of my journey. And I'm really oh, grateful. For that. That's so good. I want to follow up on one thing. When you say that Enneagram can be particularly brutal, yeah. right? Cause before we were talking about self-awareness, how, it's tough to start to see what's in the shadow, to see what's the thing underneath the thing of, oh, I always thought I was doing this because this is what I believed in. Then you do some of the work and you're like, was I mm. really doing that to prove to those people that I was this? You're like, ugh. You know, you kind of start to have 
some of those experiences. And actually, Roar is a person who would say the best way to to discover your number is not to take a test. While I think they can be helpful to get you in the ballpark, but our ability to deceive ourselves and not see ourselves with clarity, I think, gets in the way. So I don't recommend that personally. But he says, whether you're listening to lectures or you read a chapter on each number and whichever chapter it humiliates your ego or it makes you feel the most exposed, that's what you are, which is so fun. And so when you're telling somebody else that and so painful when you're doing it. So when you first, can you, I think people need to, I think it's helpful to get a feel for what that means. So when you first, what is your number? When you came across it, you're like, whoa, this is really like, like brutal, but like this is nailing some things and giving me language for some interiors that I didn't have before and how that kind of turned the lights on for you. I actually mistyped for a while. I thought I was one type for a while. Um, Interesting. And, you know, you have all the types in you somewhere. So it's not like sure. this is what you are. Let me totalize you and reduce you to a number. And I know that's not what you teach either. And I'm grateful for that. Mm. Um, and it probably took me a couple months uh, when I got wings involved, which was the number directly to the right or to the left, that's when I really began to discern, oh, I think this is my core, not that. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful theory. I'm less interested in like clinging to a number. Mm. I'm more interested in just how do these numbers help us give to what this podcast is doing? How do, how do we get clarity? Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is what motivates me to do that. And... I don't like that. And I want to change that. That's what I'm interested in. Absolutely. It is. And so there are parts of me that, that I can find in other numbers and they're still part of me, even though it's a different core number for me. So um, I find that the Enneagram becomes pretty nefarious when it's an end and not a means. When it's like the goal of the Enneagram is so, to maybe type, so you can type other people at a, at a cocktail party. Like that's like a problem. Yeah. And, you're like the guy people will eventually want to avoid. Yeah. Um, but, but how do we actually use this intel on ourselves um, to be gracious and kind and compassionate to give us a mirror? I mean, if, if you had something on your face, it, it would not be uncompassionate to give you a mirror. It would be very compassionate to say, Absolutely. you want to walk around like this for the rest of your life. Yeah. That the Enneagram helps me do, helps those that are interested in transformation do. And, and not to stop there, but to say, okay, this is the beginning of the journey. How do I work my number and begin to be really aware of, oh yeah, I'm doing it again. Or I'm, I'm, I'm sort of veering back to these default patterns. Yep, and again, a lot of it is from your heritage, how you were raised, what's normative, what, what was socially conditioned upon you. Um, and so some of that stuff, you know, has to be named so that it can either be reclaimed, reimagined, as you might say or absolutely renounced and let's walk another way and create something yeah. new for my family. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That directly leads us into this next question. You say that one of the myths about the Enneagram, which I really appreciate is that you are your number, right? You say, Oh, I'm an eight, I'm a four, I'm a whatever mm-hmm. it is. And you say instead a, a better way, one that kind of helps us get a handle of it and a bigger picture on it is to say that you're to show us that your identity and your personality are different, right? How do you articulate that distinction between our identity and our personality? Because I do think that those sort of the describing that with clarity helps people so much, I think own their numbers in a way without being over identified with them and also to help them see how, you know, all those default responses, it's, you didn't choose to default respond like that. This has happened through a process. So how do you, what is the distinction between identity and personality and why is that so important? Yeah. So this is now um, in, in this new book uh, coming out September 15, that's what chapter one is all about hmm. is what is the difference between identity, personality, and then like gifts and character. Cause human, I mean, we're complicated creatures, right? And it's not so uh, cut and dried and uh, categorized, you know, clinically to where we can just sort of parse this out. So there is overlap. Let me put it first in a metaphor. Um, imagine a, a tree and in a tree, you have a root system in a tree. You have a sort of stem coming out of that. And in a tree, you have foliage and branches. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
So let's imagine for a second that your personality is, is the stem. It's the trunk of the tree mm. and your identity is the root system. Mm. Your identity is what's underneath the soil that no one can really see, but it, it truly is what's core. It's the origin of your being, of who you are. That, according to the scripture, um, according to the biblical tradition I follow as a follower of Jesus, is what doesn't change no matter what you do. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's not part of wings. It's not a type. It's not a person. It, it is what it is, what it is, and it's true for everybody of all times, and that is the word beloved, that you are beloved, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Yeah. God loves you. God, God loves you. God loves you. It's amazing. And you can't actually disrupt that. Now, what gets socially conditioned and is also a part of your DNA makeup is your personality. Your personality is the trunk. It's what comes out of your identity. And it shapes some of that through your life experience and some of that through your, your DNA. Um, what I like to say to everybody is this, and this is probably the most important thing I say at any of my workshops. Your personality is not your identity. Your personality is a strategy. Mm. It is a strategy that you have That's learned so yep. to hope and to thrive wow. in a broken and beautiful world. Mm. And so your personality, when you begin to find out that you're a three or you're a six or you're a nine or whatever, the first place people want to go is tears and shame as if that is who they are. Mm, yeah. Right. So now they're shaming themselves. Now they're looking at totalizing that I'm a three, right. And what is, what a, either that's wonderful and look at me or that's despairing and my goodness. Um, and both of those, neither of those are, are that appropriate because what's even true about you is that you're beloved. Mm. Right. So that can, that's not up for negotiation. What I like about looking at personality as a strategy is it helps me to see, oh, I could actually like tweak around this strategy to be more helpful to myself, mm. to my family, to the world, to my neighbors. Like you can change the way you strategize to show up in life in order to navigate life better and with more shalom and, and more peace in the world. Mm. And so I'm up for that. And so I, I like to help people name because what comes out after that is now your foliage and the branches, which is right. – character and your gifts, the way in which you're manifesting your life in the world. So it's that tree that I think is really helpful for people to put the Enneagram in its place, but at the same time to give it a place because mm -hmm. it's really helpful for you to navigate your life. Does that yeah, help and get it? Absolutely. No, that's so good. And so often, you know, when people talk about the thing behind the thing right here's like, we're talking about this person's upset about this after a half hour conversation, we're like, oh, you felt left out. Yes, that's the thing behind the thing behind the thing. But I think with some of these and identity and behavioral stuff, sometimes I talk to people about the thing after the thing. And what I mean by that is, say you connect with your number and you learn like, oh, I do this because I want other people to think I'm special, right? So, wow, I allow other people to have so much power over me. That can be kind of humiliating and it's an embarrassing. And you recognize that. So here's the thing, I do this. The thing after the thing is, I do this Therefore, I'm bad. I do this. Therefore, I'm unlovable. I do this. Therefore, I should be punished. And to me, what you're saying that's so important is when you're not over identified with the number, when you start to dwell in Christ and discover that belovedness as your identity, you're like, I do this. That doesn't mean I'm bad because I know this is my identity. That just means that's what I picked up along the way in order to survive. It was my strategy to make sense, to feel mm -hmm. safe in the world. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things it's hard to take ownership and name the thing because we think that thing makes us less valuable or makes us less than lovable. And I think when we have that rootedness, we're like, no, you can own the thing. It doesn't mean that thing after the thing. It's just the thing. And now that there's so much less pressure around it, you know, I can, I can behold it and take it in and start to allow the spirit to work with yes. it more. Yes. And so, so you can disentangle that. Exactly. From your and, and that's the gift of naming. So like mm. very quickly in, in Genesis two, uh, I believe it's Genesis two, maybe it's one, I believe it's two, where we're given the commission to name things. Mm. And it's a way of Adam uh, or Adam to say, I'm not that I'm naming that. 
as a way of differentiating myself as not that. Absolutely. Right. So it preserves my identity and allows that to exist and to be looked at. Uh, in this case, it might be your, your traits or whatever. And let me look at that and pay attention to that so that I can make a decision about what I want to do with that going forward. And so naming is a very, it, it, it's far, part of the very beginning yeah. of the biblical text is we name things so that we can look at them and get altitude. I think, in fact, I read this somewhere that we're the only um, species in the animal kingdom that has the ability to think outside of ourselves mm. about the situation, the context, the, the circumstance, that we actually can gain altitude and name things so that we can actually make better decisions. And so what you're, yeah. what you're talking about is a huge part of the transformative journey of saying, I've been going this direction and now that I'm noticing it and naming it, I'm ready to take a different path. And that changes my neurological pathways. Yeah, that, no, that distinction, I think the connection between even the naming in Genesis 2 and the naming of now is the moment I, the moment I name and look at something, I'm no longer looking through it as my identity. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. that it's over there, I realize it's not me. And wow, that, yes. yeah, that connection to Genesis is so, so good. I think what you said at the end, when you think about another way forward, there's the naming. We have our number. We're recognizing. Here's some of my strategies. Sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they're not. You know, this, this has helped me when I was young. It's no longer serving me here. It's getting in the way. Then we're saying, like, when you're asking, you know, Susan, is it stabile? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're asking her who's talking about the formational path forward after, how does our number shape a unique path towards transformation? Like if people are, they're desiring to move forward in Christ, how does our number mean a unique path, whether it's unique practices or a unique, like this person's journey of courage is different from that person's journey of courage, yes. even though they're pointing towards the same thing. How does that work? For people. Yeah, I'll give you an example. It's probably the best way to say it. So if you were to tell a seven to journal and a four to journal, right, it would be a completely different thing happening in their head about what that means. Mm. A seven is thinking future orientation. What's next? What's to come? How do I not sit with this present moment? Because life is a strategy to move beyond into the next interesting thing. So mm. journaling for a seven to take time in reflection, looking present and past is a really difficult thing to do. Mm, um, yeah. Sevens are all often wanting to conceal the past by planning the next vacation or the next mm. thrill or whatever, right? Yeah. That's a morality. Totally. Fours tend toward narcissism and sort of melancholy. So you ask a four to journal and it's like, boom, I'm there. I'd love to do that, right? But a fours journaling can become all about what I feel and what I sense. You'll rarely find the fours talking about how they're caring about, you know, interceding or praying for other people. It's all about what's happening to me and how unjust that was, right? Mm. So you can have like practices for both, but they can actually mean and be applied very differently. And that's why I'm saying like, we shouldn't batch and generalize spiritual formation, that there are certain practices that each type need to take on that are going to be really easy for some and certain practices that are going to be harder for some. And we need both of those in our life. Practices shouldn't all be hard. Like as an Enneagram 3, I resonate really well with like learning new things, acquiring new knowledge, mm-hmm. so reading more books, studying the Bible. That comes very easily for me. What comes very hard for me is stuff like confession. Why? Mm-hmm. Because I have to name my stuff. And as a 3, I pride myself on achievements and performance. I don't want to name my stuff. I don't want to, I don't want to tell people my failures, right? I want to project a kind of image. So I need both of those. I need to continue to learn and to grow and to read, but I've also got to develop pathways where I need to confess what I want to hide because I want people to see me a certain way. I need to get over that. Right. Yeah. So, so each type has two types of practices that help, One helps because it's already in the trajectory of how you're wired and you're going to find it great. Keep doing that. And other practices are going to be like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'd rather avoid it, right? So like the way I say it is this. Most people circle what they're good at on the test Mm. and ignore the rest and call out following Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's discipleship in the 21st century. Mm. Oh, I like that. I like that. I like that. I don't like that. Okay, here's my test. I'm following Jesus. 
did I pass? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you've actually omitted so much of what the world really needs from you, right? Yeah. That's really going to shape you to be a better husband, to be a better dad, to be a better neighbor, right? Mm. To be better on yourself. So that's what I look at when I look at practices for each type. Yeah, that's, that's, I think personally, and especially as you work with people and with teams and to call people forward on that path of transformation in Christ, as I'm calling this person and that person forward, I'm both calling them forward one step, but that step is so different because that's hard for you. I don't need to tell that person, take the step. That's all they do is take that step over and over and do that thing. Right. Like even for my wife and I, my wife's a two and I'm a five. And so my wife's high energy, like, you know, I think she's probably a two with a three wing, like does a lot, keeps going, you know, helps people, all that stuff. And as a five, I'm naturally in my head, incarnation through the body takes a lot for people like me. Like the picture I always use in the slides is a person, it's like a depth of field shot. So it's a person on a bench, like overlooking a, a, a city. And it's like, that's what it looks like. That's what it feels like to be a five. It's like, you're always watching life and it it takes so much energy for someone like me to enter in fully so my wife and i even before i knew the enneagram our gift to each other is she's always telling me let's go get in the game share that thing move forward send that email and i need that because what for my wife she can do more in an hour with that stuff than it would i would do in six months it's so sad but what i'm saying to my wife who twos have a tendency to you know uh, forget their own feelings, forget their own needs, right? My gift to her is like, babe, it's okay to slow down. They're fine without you. Trust me. Like, let's, mm-hmm. let's be here. Let's, what are you, where are you at? And so I think personally, it's so good to know, but even leading to the next question, as we lead and help people, it's, it's, it's a, that tool opens up the compassion for others and clarity in how we see others so pastorally, we can serve them better. So how does the wisdom of the Enneagram help when it comes to leading teams, discipling mm-hmm. others. Do you have any experiences of that as an example through like your long experience from pastoring? Yeah, I would say differentiation is one of my favorite mm-hmm. words today that I don't need people to be like me on my mm-hmm. team. I need them to be like them. So and, good. You know, I remember when I, I used to pastor a church in Grand Rapids, I now live in Charleston. Um, I used to pastor a church here called Mars Hill, loved it. And, and I noticed uh, that, I, so I'm a verbal processor. I love whiteboarding, storyboarding, vision casting out loud in the moment. Boom, let's get ideas flowing. And I realized really quickly, I'm surrounded by fives. Mm. Nines. You're all, this is a nightmare. <laughs> and I thought there was something wrong with my team or something wrong with me. I remember my first few meetings just being like, I would go home and say to Elena, I don't, I don't think this is going very well because I don't get any feedback in the moment. I get blank mm. stares. Mm. And then they'd come to me like two weeks later with like pages full of ideas mm. based on the meeting. And it, it occurred to me in that moment, oh, what's happening is they need time. They need mm. space. So good. And in some ways, their ideas are going to be better than what I can come up with in the moment because they're more thoughtful and they're just time driven. And so um, I learned to really honor the different types on my team to say, oh, I I know Kyle. I know that he's not against this. I just know he needs time. And his idea is probably going to be better than mine because he's going to sit on it longer. Mm. Just give him some space and time. So it has allowed me as a three, as someone that's like, you know, an activator wanting to go entrepreneurial to slow down. Um, And it allows Kyle to also honor the way that I function and for us to kind of figure out, Oh, how do we gift one another with our differentiation? Mm. So for a leader, I think often the way in which we lead and see the world, we often assume should be normal for everybody else. That's how we assume, Oh yeah, everybody else does this too. Exactly. This is how the world works. The way in which I function as a leader is how the world works. Absolutely. And you realize really quickly, you demystify that to realize, whoa, 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 whoa. that's, that's one of many ways in which leadership works. And you need to invite a diverse differentiated group around the table to get the best outcome of what you're looking to do. Yeah. Oh, that, 
Yeah, I think just that one story and what you're saying captures so much of how helpful the clarity, the, the wisdom, the compassion, the ability to continue to lead with people and call people forward in their own discipleship when you have an understanding of that, you know, how to serve people well, how to care for people. Man, that is so, so good. I don't know if I told you this story before, but a friend of mine who pastors a church in Orange County called Redemption, Phil Wood, a woman who he brought on years ago is a powerful leader. Like she's awesome. She's at eight. My friends like in the seven, eight range, they're high energy. They're so gnarly. I'm like, when I'm around after a day, I'm like, I'm tired. As a five, I'm, like, I'm so tired right now. I can't, their vision casting. I'm like on my computer. I'm like, I I'm done. Like I don't have it in me. I can't, I flew out here for you to help me and I'm done. I can't do this anymore. But when I told her as an eight, I'm like, you know, imagine our church has a really disproportionate amount of fours, fives, and nines. She was like, that sounds like a nightmare. Because <laughs> for her, it's like, who's coming with me? Like, who's going? And, but it is like, there's the wisdom of, even I think how communities, you know, the, the life of a church is always in some ways going to organically flow out of the uniqueness of a pastor, how they preach their personality, not the whole, but a, a big part of it flows out of that. And so I think having that, wisdom of knowing where people are and uh, it's just that's that is so so helpful in marriages too in relationships can be mm -hmm. so so eye-opening of how do I serve that person who sees and experiences this world so differently <laughs> we have a little bit more time we live in an interesting time that is a, a an understatement and there's so many levels to that but one of the unique things people are seeing right now is the lives of many religious leaders blow up publicly. So we're seeing people, leaders who people have looked up to for so long lose ministries, step down from roles they've had forever. We see some of the carnage and marriages and relationships and kids and all of these things after years. Sometimes when I look at those things without knowing anybody personally, I think it's really, sometimes I look at leaders and I think the issue wasn't that they didn't know the Bible. The issue was that they didn't know themselves. Like a lot of people know how to listen to sermons, but they have not been in an environment that gave them the tools to listen to their own life along the way. So as a person who has led for so long as a person who still after all these years loves the church is still moving into another role of pastoring. What do you think when you see that and how does the Enneagram contribute to sustainable lifelong life-giving joy-filled ministry when it, when we know pastoring's hard and you see so many of the leaders that, that we've seen, fall apart or maybe neglect some of these deeper things for so long? Cause I know that's a lot, but what do you think when you hear that? Um, I think a lot of things I'll speak as a pastor. Uh, the pressure to be spectacular has never felt greater. Mm. And yeah. for many pastors, uh, Monday morning, isn't a relief from Sunday, it, it just means it's time to start the whole process over again. Mm. You know, it, it would be like expecting a chef to prepare a Michelin level meal every Sunday. And, and because of podcasts, which I'm really grateful for, um, but you know, the underside of, of access to so many sermons online for free, you feel like you're being compared and contrasted with mm you know, X, Y, Z person living in another context. So it's, it, it, it ups the ante for pastors to plagiarize for pastors to numb by seeking uh, extra marital affairs wow. uh, for pastors to uh, self-promote, to be narcissistic in order to gain an audience and a following to feel worthy. You know, they haven't, secured their belovedness and identity and and my goodness i mean i feel insecure at times as well I'm, I'm certainly not immune to that um so a lot of it's connected it's not that pastors are just suddenly um starting to fall away or engage in practices or being narcissistic or 
um, you know, you know, just terrible, you know, uh, sort of leaders that are um, not other centric. It's the, the, the cross pressures that many pastors feel is creating a kind of climate they don't feel enough for enough in. And so, um, you know, it's not surprising to me when I see a lot of my colleagues going a certain way and I have my own coping mechanisms. I've had to restrict alcohol usage in my own life. I'm not an alcoholic. It's not in my family history, but the, when I come home several days in a row, this happened a couple of years ago where I found myself coming home, going immediately for my beverage, my beverage cart. And my wife looked at me and said, oh, Hey, I'm just noticing. And this is where Enneagram stuff's helpful. She's, Hey, I'm just noticing some patterns. Like, are, are you okay? Is this a coping mechanism? Cause we were under so much stress for this project we were doing. And I just realized, Whoa, like I'm noticing that I can name that. That's not shameful for me. Thank you for helping me name that. I probably wow. couldn't have named it myself. Yeah. Yeah. Funny. I need to be wise about when I drink, where I drink and how much I drink mm. because I'm a shepherd and wow. I care about my own soul and I care about the souls in this world. So, um, yeah, I, I would say that it's a, it's a complicated and interwoven um, reason that we're seeing so many leaders right now fall across every industry. Mm. And some of it, thankfully, for the first time is being, um, you know, taped. <laughs> you know, we have technology that captures things that we didn't have before. Um, and so many people are being given an invitation to actually speak what they experienced and not be uh, you know, sort of shut down. They're believed. Um, so there are some good things happening out of that as well, mm. but it's, it's a really hard time to lead. It's a really hard time. Absolutely. To um, and so a lot of what we're seeing are coping mechanisms, yeah. that people to, strategies, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. One, thanks for sharing that so much. I think that helps give so much of what we're talking about teeth, you know, even for somebody who is, such a great leader writer and who's so familiar with this of like this journey of paying attention to my patterns, my coping mm. mechanisms mm. is, is always, it never ends. Mm. And that's also, I think one of the most helpful things about knowing your number is like your core, like that, when we talk about a center of gravity in terms of a number, you know, you kind of, you have all the numbers, but this, when you kind of go to more, your default patterns don't change your response to them, hopefully as we grow, but your default patterns, like I'm never going to have the default patterns of a three or a seven. It's always going to be, I was just talking to a friend recently who helps lead imagine with me. And I was saying, you know, when there's times of silence and solitude and there's things I have to surrender, let go of, or grieve in the presence of God, if, if it's coming out of me, I'm like, it's only, it's always three to four things because those are my things. That's what I am concerned about. That's what a part of my ego, if I'm not paying attention, the contraction of my ego wants that or doesn't feel as much if I'm not doing that or whatever. So every time I return, if there's something I'm feeling, when I return, I'm like, it's just that thing again that I have to face, let in, grieve over and surrender once more. It's like, once you know yourself, like it's not anything new. It's the same things just emerging in a million different ways, depending on the moment context of your life. But it's the same default patterns that yeah. we return to over and over. Like, yeah, that's still, that thing still has a degree of power over me. And I return to it over and over again. And transformation doesn't mean that default pattern changes. It just means its voice gets lower. It's not able to grab me as quickly or I'm aware of it before it happens, hopefully, so we can choose a new path. So man, thank you. Yeah, that, that was, that was good, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. So as we start to wrap up, we'll end in a few minutes. We live it. It is an interesting time. In Hawaii, we actually tonight go, this is on Wednesday, August, I think 26th today when we actually recorded this. And Hawaii goes back into another two-week shutdown of everything tonight because our cases are spiking and surging so much here. So it's a tough, I, I often ask people now, how are you doing in the hope department? And, yeah. you know, it's a tough time. Election season, things will continue to get weirder. Media can be overwhelming pandemic we our different environments are different 
what obviously the hope of this story is all moving towards healing oneness and wholeness one day when as people who find ourselves in the biblical narrative and believe it's the true story of the universe but in a more concrete way what is giving you hope during these times were you feeling those moments of potential resurrection and hope how how are how are you taking that in during this time yeah altitude Mm -hmm. um I, I had this moment in um, Caesarea Philippi with my, I'm sorry, Caesarea Maritima. It's on the, it's on the Mediterranean. Uh, yeah, for those of you who are about to correct him in your mind, you're like, it's not, no, no, it's over there. He was wrong about that one. <laughs> yeah, stop. Yeah, there, there is that listener there. I, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's Herod the Great built that. It was a mm. crazy port uh, in Israel north of Tel Aviv, I believe. And there's a old um, gymnasium or a place where they used to do, you know, the track and fields and they would haul out people and parade them in chains for gladiatorial games in that place. And there's this, and Christians were part of that. Paul was actually in prison there for a time. Mm. And you can imagine sitting in a prison, hearing the crowds chant as they're bringing you out, you know, that wasn't where Paul was brought out, but, but I, I imagined people being brought out there and they parade you before as, you know, the animals are about to come out and you're about to fight. And there's this passage, um, I believe it's in Hebrews where it talks about this cloud of witnesses that are mysteriously, mystically cheering you on, um, that know where the story's headed and that you're a part of this great tradition of creation of life. And they've run the race and now you're running yours. And as my wife and I are walking this, gymnasium we're crying because we're looking at the stands and i'm i'm wondering how many people are just chanting you know crucify him or you know um whatever whatever epithets are coming out at that time and this passage in hebrews talks about this cloud of witnesses that are cheering in a different direction for you they're actually cheering for you not against you and that they're located in this cloud so you have in your immediate vision these people cheering against you but if you raise your altitude you have this cloud that's cheering for you and we live in such a kind of moment where we are so focused on everything coming against us all the time that we need times in our day where hope hope is manifested from greater altitude that okay let me just remind myself though i'm depressed i have anxiety I don't know what to do with my kids for school. I don't know what my job's going to look like in a couple, you know, health insurance, all that stuff, right? Those are the crowds that you feel like are constantly cheering against you. And there's distress and strain, conflict and strife, all this stuff. But there is this other story happening at the same time, which is why I find Christianity believable, that there's this story of a crucified, risen, ascended reign of the kingdom of God. And that that is actually the final word Mm. that these other competing stories are true and they're present, they're happening, but they're not the final word. And so that's where I'm finding hope right now. Um, Maybe it sounds Christiany. I don't know, but it helps me in my day to start the day by saying, okay, God, this moment sucks. Mm. And I'm going to name that. Mm. I don't like this moment. Yet you reign. And how does that come in? How does that cloud come into this present moment and change the way I see the world and give me hope? Wow. And so that's not practical, but it is something that I'm clutching to. That's powerful. I do believe that this too shall pass. Yeah. Now that got me for a sec. I was about to ask you the question, what must I do to be saved? That was, that was <laughs> it right there. Now, believe. <laughs> now that is, that is so powerful. And the weird connection when you say that, even in my own journey during this pandemic is right when the pandemic started, my practice of morning silence switched from pure silence to listening to Gregorian chants in my AirPods as mm. I do silence. And it was because hearing that chanting, which is in a different language, it's in Latin, but it it was what you're saying that represented that cloud of witnesses of saints 
who have been through things beyond what I've experienced, harder than what I'm going through, as, as tragic as what we're seeing, and to hear them chanting, to hear them praying as a part of this trajectory, this, as Hauerwas says, to be a Christian is to jump on a moving train, you know, to, to be a part of the same journey. Like, that was that, oh, man. AJ, appreciate you coming on so much. The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation coming out September 15th. Go get that book if you're interested in the Enneagram. And if this sparked the interest, it is so worth it. And AJ would be one of the best guides I would point people to to begin and to continue that journey. Man, thank you so, so much for coming on. The next time we talk, turtles, dolphins, and then the highest point is sharks. We'll work our way up when you make it out here. Oh. We can make all that happen. Yes. Sounds good, man. Grateful cool. for you. Thank you so much. Peace and peace. Bye.